It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, We are getting towards the end of the week. It's a bank holiday weekend, the first of many. It seems as though uh, we've got a couple of bank holiday weekends, one after the other. The coronation just over a week away, of course. We've got some stories about that this morning. Uh, There's a Chinese envoy who's been invited. Uh, There's the Sinn Féin representative who's been invited. Uh, There's all sorts of uh, furore about that on the front pages. Also, The Sun has got a great story about Suela Bravman and the six things the Home Secretary doesn't want police officers uh, to do. Uh, basically including uh, do not stand by while statues get pulled down, do not get trained in contested views like critical race theory, do not police free speech, don't dance or take selfies with protesters, don't take the knee, don't hand out drinks to eco-vandals causing hell for commuters. Sounds like a recipe for a very, very good idea to me. Uh, we'll be talking to Isabel Oakshot this morning. Uh, she's first up, of course, right here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. She's going to talk about the COVID inquiry uh, and much else besides. Also, uh, what about the civil service? Because they seem to be at it again. We've got the teachers on strike today. Uh, so if your kids are actually uh, studying to do their exams, uh, they might be out of luck in terms of going to school and actually learning anything. But also now Steve Barkley is the latest member uh, of the government to be accused of bullying uh, in the Department of Health. And apparently, Uh, there's The Guardian have got the story how surprising is that Uh, what we're going to be doing of course is talking to Leon Amarali who used to be uh, his actual um, uh, special aide we'll find out from him uh, whether Steve Barkley is being wrongly accused just like Dominic Raab was in some cases wrongly accused uh, of bullying his civil servants as well also Kit Malthouse is going to join us uh, because of course he's got plenty to say about the teachers strike and as well he'll have things to say about the civil service and of course uh, what is going on uh, in the police force as well. Lots more to do. 03444991000. We've got a visit from Adam Coleman as well from the United States of America. He's going to be coming in uh, to tell us all about the wokery that is affecting not just the US of A, but also this country as well. And of course, it's Thursday, so we're going to have some Coronation Thursday club action with Helen and Nicklin. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV, the place to be, because it's the place where you get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Let's say a very good morning to Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor. Isabel, how are you doing? Morning. Morning. It sounds like Suella Braverman has joined the Independent Republic. Yeah. Well, do you know, I'm starting to get some very good vibes from this government because they've started saying common sense quite a lot. Suella Braverman started using the words common sense in her speech the other day. And yesterday, Rishi Sunak turned up for Prime Minister's questions dressed identically uh, to me. He was wearing exactly the same tie and exactly the same jacket. So there's obviously something going on. 
Well, I'll tell you what's happened. They've realised that they've messed up the whole of the rest of the country and now they're joining your republic. It's very simple. Well, absolutely. Um, well, well, let's hope the more the merrier because uh, we could do with some more common sense and if they can get hold of the teachers and they can get hold of the police and they can get hold of the, uh, the NHS and start fixing things, they might actually win the next election. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a long shot, but never too late, never too late. And you've got to remember the... Um, electoral arithmetic, you know, the kind of mountain that Labour have to climb mm. in terms of number of seats they have to win to actually get over the line. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't really don't think the Tories are going to win the next election. I really don't think they deserve to, um, but they're right to keep fighting. Yeah, no, I'm not sure they deserve to either. I just dread the idea of Keir Starmer getting in, uh, even though, as we've said before, it'd be great for us as uh, journalists, but it wouldn't be great for the country. And as long as they've still got the likes of Diane Abbott knocking around in the background, you know, they're always going to be a bit of a threat to democracy, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, maybe they'll shuffle Diane Abbott off to the House of Lords and then we'll hear very little of her uh, slightly loony mm. ramblings. Um, but anyway, I think there's been too much attention really on Diane Abbott this week. You know, she's a, a very tiny problem amid much greater problems. I've spent a good bit of this week actually looking in real detail at the COVID inquiry. Mm. Yes. Um, and I'm sort of surprised in a sense that there isn't more attention on this and i think it's because people just feel slightly despairing about it that they know that it's already pro proven to be a enormous bonanza a gravy train um for our learned friend lawyers mm. and we know that the bill for the covid inquiry is already 85 million uh, and climbing by the day um but actually it, it's so much worse than people probably think i spent tuesday listening to one of yet another preliminary hearing. This is an inquiry that's failed to even have its first proper evidence session. And what is apparent is that the whole process has been basically taken over um, by a bunch of special interest mm. groups. Now, we've got to pay tribute to the um, organizations that campaigned for the inquiry in the first place, their relatives of those who died um, of the virus. But these organisations don't seem to have any real consciousness of, of time being being limited mm. or, or public resources being limited. So, you know, the, the amount of effort that is going into keeping everybody happy about the way this inquiry is going to happen, if it ever, ever yeah. gets off the ground, is quite astonishing. I listened as the Irish victim, Northern I Irish victims representative, actually said that we should be considering as part of the COVID inquiry whether concerns over the possibility of a no-deal Brexit might possibly have affected pandemic preparations. You know, this is the level of it. Yeah. You've got everybody trying to capitalise on this for political reasons. And it's just not a good situation for taxpayers. No. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're right to say, and it's great that you're looking at this kind of thing, because that's why one of the most valuable things I think you do, Isabel, is you take your time and you look into things properly. Because unfortunately, our, our media today doesn't really seem to spend much time on anything. They're sort of like gadflies. They move on from one story to another on a sort of 24-hour cycle. But I wonder almost as though uh, this inquiry is being sort of had to settle scores and to kind of um, make people feel like something's being done to talk about what happened rather than actually to find out what really happened. 
Well, that's absolutely at the nub of it. My concern is that far too much time is being spent trying to make use this inquiry as a mechanism for making people feel mm. better. That is not what a public inquiry is for. So by way of example, they've set up this thing called Every Story Matters. Yeah. That's a way, it's basically something that was pushed for by the various bereaved families groups. That's a way of allowing people up and down the country to share their experiences of the pandemic. Mm. Now, that is important. You know, the human side of this undoubtedly is important. But when they say every story matters, they literally mean every story. Yeah. So they're setting up mechanisms for everybody. And I'm including there people who can't speak English, mm. people who are frightened of telling their stories, people who um, are very, very old, people who are very, very young, people who have different disabilities, genders and all the rest of it. You would not believe the resources going into every story mm. matters. Um, and in the end, this, this can't be allowed to be turned into some kind of group therapy session. Yeah. It's a public inquiry and its job is actually to get to the nub of what went wrong, what went right, and what we need to do better next time. Yes. That isn't about emotions. It's the opposite of that. Yes. And again, and we've got the wokists sort of taking over, haven't we? Because the terms of reference of this um, should be set by people, as you say, who want to get at the truth, not who just want to give everybody a chance to have their voice heard, you know, so a sort of Meghan Markle uh, approach to life. It, it is so much worse than you can imagine. I mean, this whole thing of every story matters. You know, everybody who gives their story will be interviewed by people who are trained in trauma. Mm. I'm not making this up. You no. know, where are the resources coming for, for this? You know, it's not for the taxpayer to provide mass counselling no. to people. It, that shouldn't be part of the pandemic inquiry. And yet that appears to be a great deal of the focus of it. Mm. Yeah, it really does. And who is responsible for the terms of reference then? Because we don't know how long it's going to last. You've been tweeting this week about how it's now <clears throat> it's now drowning in loads of irrelevant documents as well that people are just kind of tipping yeah, thousands so and thousands of pages of stuff in, into this into this situation. I mean, one one government department dumped three thousand documents on the inquiry. Now we, you can have a generous interpretation of this and say, well, the government department wants to give them everything they could possibly need. Yeah. Or have the opposite interpretation which i think i'm afraid is more likely which yes. is the government department just wants to run rings around mm. them swamp them with material make it impossible to get anywhere yeah. and yet the inquiry is charged with sifting through this stuff um and, and it, that was not an isolated case you know yeah. other government departments have not responded appropriately to demands from the inquiry for information. That came out on Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, no one's really reported it because I don't think anyone much was paying attention to proceedings. Much of it was very boring. But what we heard was that, that many government departments have not actually supplied the information and documents they were specifically asked to do. Uh, and that is being obstructive, mm. isn't it? That's not cooperating. Now, wonder why they might be doing that, because they don't want stuff to come out, do they? Well, of course not. Similar to the WhatsApp messages that you've mentioned before, that have mysteriously disappeared. You know, there's all very well getting hold of the WhatsApp messages that still exist, but the ones that don't exist are the ones that we want to see. 
Yes, yeah, so the judge uh, has said that she's going to ask for all WhatsApp messages from all the key players. I mean, that is going to be, if they were provided willingly, uh, that would be a gargantuan undertaking mm. to go through those. Uh, but in fact, they I, I'm certain they won't be willingly supplied. You know, no government minister or former government minister is just going to do what Matt Hancock did and sort of download mm. their entire phone. So they'll give selective WhatsApps. Uh, and even with that, it's going to take a long time to go through them all. Um, I do think the judge is doing her level best. You know, she was very clear in Tuesday's hearing that she wants to produce some findings, if not by the end of this year, next year, which is better than some might have anticipated. Yes. Uh, but I don't for any um, for a moment suggest that that's going to be the full report. It'll just be some initial findings. Mm. Uh, but she's essentially, as fast as she tries to climb this mountain, she's being pulled back down again uh, by all the special interest groups and special pleaders who are trying to get more and different out of the inquiry. Yeah. And I mean, thus far, we really haven't learned anything, have we? No, because there haven't been any full evidence sessions yet. The, the first proper public hearing starts in the middle of June, if it's not delayed. Um, and she is resisting pressure for it to be mm. delayed, which is the right thing to do. So, um, no, it's not been very illuminating, except to see just how much faffing around there is and how much foot dragging and government departments not wanting to cooperate. Yeah. Absolutely right. Stay where you are, Isabel, if you could. There's lots of us that we want to talk about. Predictably, the civil service are at it again, leaking stories to The Guardian, this time um, about Stephen Barclay at the Department of Health supposedly bullying people, but no official complaints have been made. Uh, isn't that a surprise? This is Talk TV. Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Before we move on, Isabel, to the uncivil service, because as we suspected last week when we spoke uh, after Dominic Raab's resignation, um, the civil service are at it again, this time saying Stephen Barclay uh, is a bully. Uh, but we'll come to that. I thought I should ask you, first of all, about the, uh, the big story of the day, uh, which is the Nutrition Foundation in Britain saying that uh, beans and fish fingers are back on the healthy menu uh, and they should never have been said to be unhealthy in the first place. I, um, I haven't. I have to say, I have not delved into the detail of this story, but I did, I did see the headline, and I thought I grew up on this stuff. Mm. Um, I mean, maybe it's why I'm so small. I don't know, but it was tasty enough. Yeah. You know, in well, also that. as a busy mother, I'm assuming you've probably cooked the odd fish finger for your kids from time to time. Fish fingers are no bad thing, and actually, bean. I mean, baked beans have always been well known to be very nutritious. Yeah. Strange. Tend to have a bit too much sugar in them, um, but they are very good for el elderly people who need warming up, and um, they're very cheap, as you know. Yeah, beans on toast, beans on uh, baked potatoes, very good indeed. Anyway, that's, I just wanted to get that one out of the way. Let's talk about Stephen Barclay, because of course the Guardian has got another story from the civil servants who always seem to like to leak to the Guardian. Strangely enough, um, Funny that, isn't so, it? It's, it's talking about how you know raised concerns uh, have been have been put to uh, to Barclay and other piece, senior civil servants in the Department of Health and Social Care have privately referred to bullying and other bad behaviour. I mean, what does that even mean? I think it's time that Steve Barclay and others turned the tables on some of the complainers and accused them of bullying him. Yeah. I mean, this is just getting absolutely pathetic, mm. isn't it? It really uh, is. Steve Barclay is allegedly a bit difficult and a bit challenging. Well, if you can't cope with that, then go and do another job. Mm. Go and 
mangoes on the beach somewhere or, you know, go and sew tapestries in your bedroom. Um, if you take a job in a government department, then you should expect to be held to account for the quality of your work being paid for by the taxpayer. And if you can't hack it, then right. go into something else. And also by coincidence, strangely, they might have noticed at the Department of Health that the NHS is basically uh, on its knees uh, at a pretty much a standstill, not really working in any kind of area whatsoever. So you might think there might need to be a few seriously hard conversations to be had about fixing well, it. Arguably, they quite clearly have been anywhere near enough effectively hard conversations to try to make things work better uh, and if Steve Barclay is applying a bit of pressure um, then very good for him he's doing what he should be doing uh, I think that Rishi Sunak made a massive mistake uh, by accepting um, Dominic Raab's resignation last week, you know, you will have looked at the report in detail as I did. Yeah. It didn't amount to anything any reasonable person mm. would uh, define as bullying. And what Rishi Sunak did by failing to back Dominic Raab there was open the floodgates. Mm. And sure enough, it really didn't take long, did it? No. I mean, this will just be the beginning of it, I'm sure. And it will continue, no doubt, until the Conservatives, as you say, probably quite rightly, predictably lose office. Um, let's talk about the coronation, because we're not far away now, just a, almost a week away. Um, big story on the front page of the Mail this morning, uh, saying invitations to put you off your coronation quiche. Sinn Féin leader, of course, being invited... You would expect it, though. Um, and then the architect of China's brutal crackdown in Hong Kong. I mean, I suppose you could slightly have a bad taste in your mouth, but what else are they supposed to do? Uh, I disagree on that. I think we should have made a symbolic decision there to not to invite anyone involved in those outrages in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong is a former uh, part of our... It's very much part of our history yeah. and our... Um, heritage. We've had to accept, um, and rightly so, many of those who essentially fled from Hong Kong as the Chinese took over. Um, and why, why are we honouring some of the key architects of some of those outrageous uh, policies that showed the um, appalling attitude towards human rights in Hong Kong, despite all the ass empty assurances that we were given that this wouldn't happen. Um, so I, I would have been all up for a diplomatic row with the Chinese. I know we've got to stop pussyfooting around mm. these people. Well, I guess you either take that view or you don't know, because I, I, I dare say those in the diplomatic corps would say, well, we do a lot of trade with China. Uh, that's why we talk to China. That's why we go and send missions to China. Uh, and we, we have a better voice inside the room than outside the room. I'm not saying I support that view, but that's what they would say. I'm sure it is what they would say. And I would say we should do a bit less trade with China and start making some of our own things or find other slightly uh, more benign trading mm. partners. China does not wish us well. No one should be under any illusions about that. They're up to all sorts of truly dreadful things in all sorts of places. Uh, and, you know, the, we shouldn't rehabilitate figures uh, or habilitate figures who are involved in things that are greatly to the detriment of, of people with whom we have a strong mm. connection, yeah. i.e. those living in Hong Kong. Yes. I mean, that's a perfectly va valid point of view. And what about uh, the, the Chinese intervention in Ukraine yesterday? We had President Zelensky saying, uh, with your Talk TV International editor's hat on, uh, President yes. Zelensky saying he had a long phone call with Xi Jinping. Um, good or bad? Well... I mean, I would never say don't bother having the conversation, but, you know, how much is that 
other things that Xi Jinping allegedly, supposedly said uh, worth. You know, apparently he was, you know, talking talking the talk about the importance of sovereignty and and so on. I mean, what utter nonsense coming from, you know, the leader of the Chinese regime that on a daily basis is absolutely copy a stick at, at, at sovereignty. You know, this is a regime that's busy um, trying to colonize the South China Sea, trying to impede freedom of navigation uh, in key maritime routes. It doesn't have any um, regard for sovereignty. So I, I don't really, and also whatever Xi Jinping, the warm words that he may have articulated uh, was somewhat undermined by other senior Chinese figure earlier this week, kind of suggesting that former parts of the Soviet Union have no uh, real status. Um, I just think, yes, sure, President Zelensky's right to go through the motions, uh, but let's not fall for any kind of um, illusion that China is going to be an effective and benign peacemaker in Mm. this conflict. And what about Sinn Féin? Because, you know, these are the people who don't want to turn up in Parliament uh, to take their seats because they don't wish to pledge allegiance uh, to the uh, king uh, or formerly the queen. Uh, But they don't mind going to the coronation. Well, again, I just don't think they should be invited. Mm. Um, You know, I I guess these stories were always bound to come, you know, look through the guest list and find the, um, you know, the despots and dictators that shouldn't be there. Um, but they, you know, they really do show unbelievable hypocrisy by accepting the mm. invitation. Yeah, unbelievable stuff. But I'm sure there's going to be more stories like that. Isabel, thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV, is international editor, uh, talking uh, an awful lot of sense about the civil service and about the COVID inquiry, of course, as well. Coming up, we're going live to College Green uh, down in Westminster. Uh, we'll find out what's going on down there. We've got lots to talk about. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got an awful lot going on this morning. We're going to be talking uh, to Harry Miller about the police situation because uh, Suella Braverman has decided that it is time to wake up uh, the woke police and tell them to stop being so bleeding woke. She's going to be telling them, don't stand by while statues get pulled down. Don't hand out drinks to eco-vandals causing hell for commuters. Don't take the knee. Don't dance or take selfies with protesters. Don't police free speech and don't get trained in contested views like critical race theory. Six things uh, which basically make perfect sense, you would imagine, to most people. Uh, And policing, actually, is a pretty straightforward thing. You might have seen yesterday, we'll maybe find you the video of Lee Anderson uh, having a go at the new chief of the Metropolitan Police because, of course, um, uh, Rowley, uh, the man who's now in charge, took a bit of exception to what Lee Anderson was saying because Lee Anderson was basically telling him he didn't think he was doing his job properly. So that, I'm afraid, uh, is a very uh, interesting start to way to do things. So also, uh, what we're going to be doing later on uh, in the show is we're going to be finding out uh, exactly what these allegations are about Steve Barkley. Because as we said with Isabel Oakeshott there, the bottom line here is that what on earth is going on inside the civil service? I mean, the NHS is basically on its knees. It is basically all over the place. And yet... Steve Barkley, the health secretary, is being said to be bullying his, um, his underlings, which is absolutely and utterly ridiculous. Uh, Tony from Barrett in Furness says, Mike, with the civil service now running the government, we could see how poor our MPs of the Lib Lab Contric Party are by the way they listen to special advisors straight from university with no life or work experience and take their media friends seriously. Well, that's true. Let's talk to Tim Lawton, who's Conservative MP for East Worthing in Shoreham. He's live down on uh, College Green for us in Westminster. Tim, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning. Morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, lots to talk about. I know you haven't got a great deal of time. You made a great point yesterday at Prime Minister's Questions um, ahead of the migration debates. You spoke, um, you've spoken as well about uh, the channel migrants threatening cultural cohesiveness with Robert Jenrick getting, getting in the neck for mentioning cannibalisation and all sorts of things like that. Um, we still don't quite have the, the bulk of the country on side, do we yet? For what? Uh, sorry, for, you, for, for, for what it is that Suella Braverman wants to push through. There still seems to be people who, who think it's still a great idea to let everybody come here, no matter what uh, they're coming here for. No, I don't think we do. I think most people in this country want to see a proper orderly migration policy, which means that those people who are genuine asylum seekers, genuinely fleeing dangers and to have some connections uh, with the UK, traditionally we've offered a safe haven to, which we can do on a limited basis. What really annoys people, which is why the bill which we passed yesterday is so uh, important, is those people who are gaming the system, who do not have a credible case for claiming asylum in the UK, are coming in the most dangerous route, paying ruthless people smugglers for that uh, privilege. And that's why we've got to clamp down on that. But we need to demarcate those genuine asylum seekers between those who are not and who are gaming uh, the system yes. and abusing the generosity and the hospitality of British taxpayers. And the, and the people that I'm talking about... And I think most people are agreed on that. Yes, no, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I probably didn't frame it quite correctly. What I'm talking about are the people who sort of, um, uh, I don't know, sort of provocatively uh, act on behalf of the people coming here and in some ways even on behalf of the people smugglers. You know, the people who say that, you know, anyone who comes here should be allowed in. I mean, they tend to be political activists, they tend to be lawyers, they tend to be human rights specialists. I'm, I'm suppose I'm talking about those people who, who simply won't understand what the British people want. And, and that is really unhelpful on, on all fronts. Mm. One, it's not fair to British people who are paying the bill for people that we are housing in uh, hotels, many of whom will not have a legitimate case to be in the uh, UK in the long term, uh, and for whom we need to process those claims much more quickly. But also, I think it's really annoying people uh, that, that uh, hostility is being abused. And the people who suffer most of all are those genuine asylum seekers. Mm. I think most decent people in this country would want to give safe haven to asylum-seeking children who are generally children, who are generally coming from war zones and from um, oppression. We have a proud tradition of, uh, of doing that. But they are being cue-bumped by those people who've got money to pay people smugglers to kind try and come across the channel in the most dangerous uh, way and completely illegitimately. And that's what everybody wants to see clamped down on. Yeah. Apparently even the Labour Party, although they won't vote for the means to do it, which is what we did do in the bill yesterday. Yeah. I spoke to an Albanian MP yesterday in Tirana who was saying that uh, now that the agreement's in place, a lot fewer Albanian men are coming here on the small boats. But, but equally, apparently, those uh, places are being filled now by other people, a lot of them coming from India. So the traffickers have got a very modern and very sophisticated model, haven't they, uh, which works very well in moving people around the world. These are ruthless and quite sophisticated criminals who are making millions of pounds out of human smuggling and human uh, trafficking, a really miserable and disgraceful uh, trade. Now, the Home Affairs Select Committee I sit on was in Albania uh, recently. Mm. We met a number of people who had been deported from other uh, European um, countries, and all of them claimed, as well as everybody else there, actually there are not grounds for most Albanians to be able to claim asylum 
leaving Albania. It's entirely for economic uh, reasons. So we need to make sure we can turn around and deport as many of those people as possible and to other safe countries where, frankly, there's no cause for them to leave. I'm curious about why there's been um, a recent surge in some uh, Indian citizens mm. trying to come across in that way because we already take legally mm. a lot of Indian citizens with family connections here who have businesses, who study, who contribute to the UK economy. There is no excuse for Indian, Indian citizens illegitimately to try and come to the UK through these dangerous and illegal uh, routes. And again, the bill we passed yesterday will make that absolutely clear and will be able to turn those people around very, very quickly mm. when the system is up and running properly. How confident are you that it gets in and out of the House of Lords without being sort of butchered by the people in there? Well, it has to. So I put down amendments yesterday, which the government did accept, which are about making sure there are proper, safe and legal routes for those genuine asylum seekers. And that is a, a, a suitable and appropriate counterbalance for the really tough measures mm. that the bill quite rightly contains about coming down on those who don't have a credible um, case. I think that's helped the passage of the bill in the Lords, as well as considerations about how we detain genuine asylum-seeking children, again, who need to be given special considerations. So that, that has actually, I think, given some, uh, some greater credibility to the, to the bill. No doubt there will be some of the people you've referred to earlier in the Lords who will jump up and down. But at the end of the day, this situation is unsustainable. 46,000 people coming across the Channel, paying ruthless criminal um, gangs in the most dangerous uh, way cannot go on. And the government's tried a lot of things uh, to stop it. We need this legislation coupled with a Rwanda scheme that effectively can mean that those people who don't have a legitimate claim can be here will be having a lottery as to whether they end up in a Kent hotel mm. or on a plane to Rwanda. And that will be a deterrent factor, as we saw when we went to France, mm. uh, when they said that when the Rwanda scheme was announced, there was a big surge of people, migrants, approaching the French authorities about inquiring about the possibility of staying in France because they don't want to risk going to Rwanda. We need to get that scheme up and running in conjunction with this legislation and we might actually turn around this situation. Yes. And the other part of the, the jigsaw, I suppose, is the Home Office, isn't it? Because the Home Office has been woefully slow sure. uh, in, in actually uh, processing some of these applications as well. And to, 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 to speak of that, uh, it takes us on to the civil service. We've seen today yet another leak to the Guardian, funnily enough, uh, that uh, Steve Barclay is now going to be accused of some kind of bullying type behaviour by, by members of the senior members of the civil service in the Department of Health. Um, we could have predicted that this would happen, I suppose, after what happened to Dominic Raab. I mean, you've worked with the civil service uh, in your career, uh, Tim. How have you found them? Or have you, do you think the civil service has fundamentally changed in some way? Well, I, it's, it's a while since I was a, a minister, and I was a minister in the Department for uh, Education. And I had a, a very good, constructive working relationship with the, with the civil servants I, I worked with, and I had great respect uh, for and actually, conversely, I had to challenge them to challenge me more. Mm. I didn't want them constantly to say, uh, yes, of course, Minister, and that's all very good, Minister. I wanted them to say, hold on a minute, Tim, are you sure you're doing the mm. right thing? And then we could have a constructive debate about it. And that's a healthy way yeah. of making sure you're getting the legislation uh, right. And that, you know, that's the sort of relationship that a good minister and decent civil servants should, uh, should have. So I'm, I'm doubtful and concerned about the story on Dominic Rubb, who I know is a very hardworking, very bright uh, lawyer who demands high standards of the people working uh, around him quite rightly. 
if that crosses over into a line into in, into bullying, I think it needs to be a very well-defined uh, line as to what mm. a minister can expect of civil uh, servants in order to get the best um, out of them. And it shouldn't be used as an excuse that for the minute that you get something demanded of you that you think is perhaps a bit uh, unreasonable, you start crying, oh, you're, you're, you're bullying right. uh, me. This, is, this has got to be sorted out. This is not in the interest of, of ministers who are now constantly having to look over their, their shoulder uh, or of civil servants who need a good uh, working relationship with the ministers uh, around them. I was never in any, any doubt about the dedication of my civil servants to deliver the things I needed them to uh, deliver, and that's the way proper government yeah. runs. And, Do- and Dominic Raab did say that he thought that this, re- this sort of report had set a very, very low bar and very low threshold for, for behaviour, if you like, that might be considered to be bullying, because it, it was defined basically as if somebody thought uh, that you were being intimidating, then you were being intimidating. Well, he has a point um, there, and I think we very urgently need to have a proper system whereby at an early stage, if there are concerns that a minister has overstepped the uh, the mark, then they must uh, come out and can be investigated. One thing I I certainly defend Dominic Raab over, he he has been pilloried in the many weeks and months in the run-up to this report actually being uh, published, and it's been assumed that he's been... Uh, guilty before any evidence has actually mm. been um, published, and that has undermined his position to be able to carry on as a hard-working um, minister. So the system is not working at the moment, and, and he's right that this does threaten to lower the thresholds at, at, uh, at which claims mm. of bullying can, um, can 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 come in when it's not the intention uh, of uh, a minister to, to bully, but they do need to have reliable, hard-working, dedicated people um, around them to do a very difficult, complex and often stressful Mm. um, job, as I know from my time as a minister. Sure. Tim, grateful to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Tim Lawton there, Conservative MP for East Worthing and Shoreham, uh, giving us his view of the Dominic Raab situation, because, of course, it's now spread over to uh, another government department, the Department of Health, of course, and Steve Barclay, uh, the Secretary of State in the Department of Health and Social Care. Uh, We'll get on to that coming up very shortly. We'll also get to Harry Miller as well. We want to talk about the policing uh, situation now with Suella Bravman trying to wake it up, trying to make it as unwoke as possible because that's what it needs to do to get back to basics effectively. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, Give it a rest is the headline uh, in the sun this morning uh, because they've got a story saying no more PC PCs. Finally, Suella Braverman uh, has told the police to wake up uh, and stop being so woke if you don't mind. Uh, six things she wants to woke officers to stop doing. One, don't stand by while statues get pulled down. Two, don't hand out drinks to eco-vandals causing hell for commuters. Three, don't take the knee. Four, don't dance or take selfies with protesters. Five, don't police free speech. And six, don't get trained in contested views like critical race theory. You'd think most of those things would be pretty obvious, wouldn't you? Let's talk to Harry Miller, former police officer, of course, and founder of the Fair Cop Group. Harry, very good morning to you. Yeah, I was at the I was at the meeting yesterday, and it was fantastic to hear Sola Braverman um, clarify these things. We asked her directly, "What does it mean to be political?" And she said, "I'll give some examples: critical race theory, gender ideology. They are political." Now, if you want to be an eco zealot, or you want to be a hunt saboteur, or you want to be a gender ideologist, there are a thousand jobs out there where you can fill your boots. Mm. But what you cannot do is join the police. 
And if you do join the police with those views, then what you have to do is keep your gob firmly shut. We do not need to know what the police think about these issues which are political. Now, when we've asked as fair cop, why are you engaging in political activity, Chief Constable, by painting your police car in the colours of mm. a rainbow or taking the knee? They've said repeatedly, that's not political. That's not political storm. That's equality and diversity. Yes. Well, now we have the definitive answer from the Home Secretary. These things are unequivocally political. Mm. Police have no business whatsoever in doing or engaging in any of them. So we see this as an absolute victory for Faircop because it was our question which got these the, these clarifications out. Well, I'm so glad we've got you on to, to explain all that to us, Harry, as well. Because the thing is, of course, it's the left, isn't it? It's the wokists who always say it's not political uh, because they think anyone who doesn't think the way they think uh, is some kind of a maniac, some kind of a you know murdering criminal that must be locked up and kept away from children and all that kind of thing. You know, because if you don't like taking the knee, there's obviously something wrong with you. So they probably in their heads don't think it is a political stance. They just think it's a decent thing to do. Yeah, well, what, what they do is they say it's about human rights. Yes. And, and since um, since the oath of attestation was changed, I think in 2002, 2003, the police have been obliged to uphold not only the law and the king's peace, but also human rights. But the problem with that is that most human rights are contested mm. and the police cannot predict where a human right is going to is going to become law or not become law because mm. it's contested. So until a human right no matter who's shouting for it and who's supporting it, and even if that human right eventually turns into the right side of history, the police have no business whatsoever in supporting that contested human right until the point that it becomes part and parcel of British law. Mm. Because right up until that, that point, it's political, and the police must not engage in it. They must not. They must be absolutely vanilla they have to be utterly neutral. They have to take an example from her, her late majesty, the queen. We never knew a damn thing about what she thought. Mm. She smiled, she waved, she was nice to everybody. And that's what we want from the police. Yeah. Of course, not criminals. We don't want the police to be nice to criminals. No. Well, we want the, the police to track them down and throw them in jail. And that was another great thing that the Home Secretary said yesterday. Not only are we getting more police officers back on the beat, but she wants them to use stop and search. Mm. She wants them to. She wants them to um, show us the body cam footage when there are contested claims about police activity. Because we have a Home Secretary now who believes in policing. So the Home Secretary and I, fair cop, we are absolutely one on this. And it was great because she stopped, she shook my hand, she thanked me, and she said, "Fantastic work, Harry. You're, you and fair cop are doing amazing work." So we're on the same side, and yeah. we're pushing it. No, you definitely are. And that's a good thing. But surely you also have to get to the root of what this problem is and where it came from. Because I saw, as probably you did, uh, Lee Anderson, the Tory MP yesterday, uh, grilling old uh, Sir Mark Rowley down in uh, uh, Parliamentary Committee about why he wasn't doing more to arrest protesters and about why he wasn't doing more to stop, you know, kind of misogyny in the police force and all of that. Because I wonder who in the first instance would have given the Metropolitan Police the idea of taking the knee in the first place. I mean, who on earth would have given that order? 
Well, exactly. This is what happens when you cozy up and associate with political ideologies. So you cozy up to Black Lives Matter, you then start adopting mm. the political Marxism of Black Lives Matter. You cuddle up to Stonewall, you then start adopting the, the, the general election manifesto of Stonewall. And that's why the police code of ethics is very clear. You cannot engage in politics, neither can you associate with those who are engaging mm. in politics in case it gives the impression that you are not going to be able to operate without fear or favor. Suella Braverman was very clear about that. It gives the wrong impression. If, you, if you're seen taking the knee or giving cups of tea to eco-zealots who've glued themselves to, to, uh, to, to the tarmac, it gives the wrong impression. What we need is a police force that is apolitical, non-political, politically impartial, politically mm. vanilla that serves without fear and favour and gets on with the job of catching criminals. That's what we need. And we've still got, you know, big differences, haven't we? Because you look at how uh, those protesters were dealt with at the Grand National by Merseyside police in what I think most of us would agree was a magnificent uh, <laughs> a sort of explanation of what police should do and what they should, how they should do it. You know, they were all moaning later that they were, their arms were being twisted and, you know, their wrists were being hurt by the handcuffs. Well, good. That's exactly what should happen. But meanwhile, in London, just the other day, um, a guy gets out of his van to try and move some Just Stop Oil protesters and the police start nicking him. Yeah, that's, that's because the police have taken on board an ideology. There, there is a higher... Yeah, but they haven't done it in Merseyside, but they have done it in London. Yeah, well, because the, the, the Met basically are ruled by uh, the, the ideology of Sadiq Khan. In Merseyside, they're, they're a little more sensible. I mean, yeah. they're entirely captured by a gender ideology, but on other issues, they seem to mm. be relatively, relatively sound. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we need to remove everything that strikes as political. Everything, if it, if it looks political, it is political. Yes. And that, that's the standard. That's the standard. If there is a contested argument, if there are opposing sides of a debate, if there is a flag and colours which are routinely paraded by one side, then it is a political issue and the police have to be absolutely neutral. Mm. And then what they have to do is they need to show the public that they are serving without fear or favour by dealing with absolute impartiality to these ludicrous lawbreakers. Yeah, absolutely right. And what did you make of that? I don't know if you saw that video of Rishi Sunak uh, being driven somewhere the other day uh, and in front of him were uh, a sort of phalanx of cops on bikes followed by some rather tubby looking people sort of jogging very slowly um, ahead of a, a fleet of Range Rovers. I mean it's one of the most ridiculous things I think I've ever seen. I was likening it to some kind of Monty Python sketch. I mean you're a former police officer. What did you make of it? Here we go. Here we go again. Kim Young Rishi, what's going on? I mean this is this is this is not what we do in England. Cyc you know, fat cyclists on right, bikes. Right. It, 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 it's comedic. I, I mean, I, expect, I expected I, was I expected them to start sort of standing on the saddle or something and doing sort of you know um, bizarre uh, acrobatics. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I, I didn't believe it was a true video when I first saw yeah. it. I thought it's be a, it's got to be a spoof because right. this is how British politicians behave. Mm. Let alone. British police. We're yeah. not like that. We're not Kim Young. We're, we're, we're not Joe Biden or Donald Trump. We don't do this. Mm. It's just very, very weird. Anyway, listen, Harry, great to talk to you and great work. I shall congratulate you as well uh, for doing all you've done, uh, for making the police wake up and be less woke, for heaven's sake. It's got to be a good thing. Harry Miller there from uh, the Fair Cop Group. Let's talk to Matthew, who's in Cheshire. I want to talk about civil service. Hi, Matthew. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, sir. Um, I just, I was thinking this for the last few days, mm. and I wanted to, um, it's more a question than anything. Right. 
can can the government use the security services to uh, investigate potential collusion between the civil service and the unions and the Labour Party? Yes, that's a very good and, question. And uh, do they have any powers at mm. all? Well, do you know, I, 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 wouldn't, I don't know the answer to that, but I will find out the answer to that because we're going to talk about civil servants coming up to Kip Morthouse, um, who's a former minister as well. So he may know the answer to that, but you're probably right to draw the conclusion that there might be collusion going on. Well, my instinct has been since sort of about two years ago when there just seems to... Sh sh well, surely the government or the prime minister must see that um, all these three groups have purposely paralysed the work of government to make Labour's gripes easier. And it seems that whenever there's a particular uh, bullying story or a particular department of the government that isn't working properly, mm. Labour are on it within about five minutes, just as it's announced. Yeah. And that's been going on for two years now. And yes. Nobody's asking, the government aren't asking any questions right. or pointing the finger at Labour. And maybe it's that's where they should be looking. Well, I mean, it doesn't all happen by accident, does it, conveniently and simultaneously? Right. Yes, it, it, is, it is very convenient. You're absolutely right. Matthew, we'll have a look into that. Very fascinating question to ask because we know about the Sue Gray situation. There was word yesterday coming out uh, of Whitehall that she may not be allowed to work for Keir Starmer before the election because of what she knows from her time as the investigations chief inside of Downing Street. So there's obviously some jiggery-pokery going on. We don't quite know what it is. 0344 499 1000. We want your stories about the police, though. Uh, have the police become political where you live? Because they certainly have in London. This is Talk TV. Coming up in the next hour, uh, we're going to be talking to Leon Emerali about the civil service. And also, we'll be getting stuck in uh, with Kit Malthouse to the teachers' strike as well. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is the place to be, of course. It is a Thursday, uh, which can only mean one thing, uh, the Thursday Club. And we're going to be looking at some coronation beverages today with Helen Nicklin. Also, Adam Coleman's visiting us from New York. Uh, he's going to be in columnist for the New York Post, of course. He'll tell us all about the wokery uh, that is ruining America. Uh, and Joe Biden, of course, who has now decided he wants to run for a second term, uh, by which time he'll be 86. Good idea or not. We shall see. Uh, this morning uh, we're going to be talking to Kit Malthouse a little bit later on in this hour. Uh, he's a former education minister. He's got plenty to say about the teacher strike today. If you're affected by that, we need to hear from you. Also, we'll take your stories today on the police uh, and how woke they've become in your neck of the woods because Swallow Bravman has now given them a six-point plan on how to behave properly like police officers rather than uh, like protesters. I think it would help. Right now, though, we're going to talk about the civil service and more bullying claims. Leon Emerali's here. Leon, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Former government special advisor, former aid, of course, to the Right Honourable Steve Barclay MP, who's the latest minister uh, to be accused of uh, bullying. Funnily enough, uh, in The Guardian. The mm. Guardian has been leaked a load of information from the Department of Health and Social Care in, in which people supposedly have been privately referring to bullying and other bad behaviour. One source has told The Guardian, Barclay's style is very macho. He would say that it's forensic, but in reality he's a micromanager, he hauls people over the coals and is generally a bit unpleasant. I mean... I don't know what they expect from a government minister. I mean, it might have not escaped their notice that the Department of Health is in a pretty dire state yeah. and the entire NHS is kind of broken. Yeah. So you might need somebody to be a bit robust about that. Yeah, I mean, if you don't like someone, 
that doesn't mean that you can call them a bully. Right. If you don't, if they're not walking around the office cracking jokes every five minutes, it doesn't mean you can call them a bully. And I think we have to understand that government is high pressure, you know, stuff. Right. I mean, you're dealing with literally the NHS falling apart at the seams because mm. everyone's on strike. You're dealing with all sorts of different issues that are literally a case of life and yes. death in this instance. So the pressure and the stress of it does, you know, build up. And mm. I think that ultimately, if you've got someone who takes that on board and takes that to heart. Is that a bad thing? Right. I mean, I think if you if you can be a tough taskmaster, mm. I think that's what we want in government rather than someone who's just going to pander yeah. to Yeah, and every also it, it's, it's kind of one of the rules of business, isn't it? That almost immediately that you order something to be done, particularly mm. something to be changed, it almost certainly doesn't happen. Yeah. And then when it doesn't happen, people ke- tend to get a bit irritable. I mean, I remember working in newspapers and mm. you'd be given an instruction by the editor who said something like, you know, from now on we want to have the first paragraph in a particular typeface yeah. or we want it bold instead of, you know, Roman. And the next day, the paper would come out and it would be the Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Same as the day before. And yeah. you go, what, what are you doing? You know, yeah. I've asked you to do that. Why yeah. haven't you done it? I then have to go and tell the guys that I told to do it. Yeah. Why haven't you done it? And you can't, there's not really a nice way of doing no, that. No, and if you want things to change in government, you do need the political will to, to push it through from the very top. Mm. And if you left civil servants to their own, I'm not going to uh, criticise all of them because there are many, many yeah. good and talented civil servants, but if you left them on their own devices, I think we would find government that just stagnates, it doesn't yes. get anything done. But when the politicians start getting involved and saying, look, I want this to happen, I want that to happen, because ultimately the people have elected us on a mandate right. to deliver this, that's when you see things change. And I think it's only a good thing that we've got someone like who is, uh, you know, a tough taskmaster, but someone who is get, got a track record of getting things done. That right. we've got him in somewhere like the Department of Health to actually shake it up a bit. Right. And I mean, you've worked with him, so you know him. Um, and if, if you said to me, you know, he can be a little bit brusque at times, or he can be a little bit short with people, you know, even that doesn't am- a- amount to it. I mean, I'm not saying you have said that. I mean, you can tell me what sort of a guy he is, but you know, there is there are always going to be times when somebody could be described as being a bit short with someone, isn't aren't there? Yeah, we all have good days. We all have mm. bad. Days, but I can tell you this much: Steve Barkley is not a bully. You know, I've not, I don't yeah. recognise those characteristics mm. in that Guardian. He's article. not unpleasant. He's not unpleasant. I mean, look, at the end of the day, he's in a, an important job and he's doing important work, mm. so he isn't going to be going around cracking jokes every five. And minutes. he's also the guy who answers to the government and his own boss, Rishi Sunak, about yeah. what's going on in the Department of Health. Yeah, absolutely, he does. And, and the thing I find with this, Mike, that is extraordinary is there, are, there isn't any formal complaint against Steve mm. Barkley. It's all just office hearsay. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that that's made the Guardian on its own I think is slightly bizarre but Steve Barkley is not someone who I recognise as a bully mm. I mean he, he's, he's a good manager in the sense that he does actually recognise the small details I've seen him you know go to, to lengths to, to celebrate someone's birthday mm. or or to write a particular message in their in their leaving card or yeah. whatever it might be. you know he does those things that above and beyond a good boss right. does and he's certainly not a bully right and also the Guardian doesn't appear to have learned its lesson because what we know from the Dominic Raab case was that not, an awful lot of the stories that they published about Dominic Raab turned out to be completely based yeah. You know, the one where he was throwing tomatoes around, where he was shouting, where he was throwing things, where he was, you know, swearing at people. He himself said in his resignation letter 
not one allegation of swearing was upheld. And he yeah. said, in all the time that I worked in the department, I never did swear. Yeah, yeah. So all of that stuff, that, and they had published all that without really sourcing it, just saying it was from a source. Well, this you know. is what's difficult, Mike. What, what constitutes bullying? Mm. I mean, how on earth do you define bullying between just being someone who's, who, who's got high standards or being able to you know, want to, to do a good job? And mm. I think that's the difference here, is you've got someone who can say something and suddenly it makes the front pages of the paper and then you know, reality, sorry, perception is reality yeah. in the world of politics. So right. once it makes that front page or makes the, the news bulletin, suddenly that, that narrative sets in train and everyone starts thinking, oh, when he spoke to me in that way, was that bullying yeah. or was this bullying and then it builds and builds and builds right. so I just think that there's a big issue with how we define bullying in the workplace mm. and I actually think that both civil servants and ministers need to have a better set of training in yes. place so they can say here's how you behave here's how you right. conduct yourself and here's what to expect mm. from a government well, minister. Well Tim Lawton said something similar that you know they need to get along better because mm. obviously it's not in anybody's interest if the minister and the civil servant don't get on no. because then it doesn't work and no. nothing goes on but do they have a sort of written code as, as far as if you're a, you come in as a special advisor, are you handed a kind of a code of conduct and something to guide you as to what you can do yeah, and what you can't do? Absolutely. I mean, there is a, a number of, of pieces of paperwork that you have to go through when you work in the civil service mm. or work in any sort of position in, in Westminster that gives you the, the details of how to work. But I, what I don't think is necessarily being understood now, and we're not seeing it just in politics, we're mm. seeing it in the private sector as well the standard of which people expect to be treated yeah. is very different to how maybe, Mike, when you started your yeah. career... You well, know, I, I didn't expect anything. No. I just went to work. And if I got something right, I was told that was good. Yeah. And if I got something wrong, I was told it wasn't. Yeah. And you I know, think, and I didn't really expect anything. Yeah, and I think if, if bosses start being afraid of telling people when something's gone wrong then we're going to be at a point where productivity in this country is already low. Mm. Productivity is already you know, rock bottom in yeah. the UK. And it's no wonder when you start to see the way that workplaces are being, you know, cultures in workplaces right now, it's becoming a real issue. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I remember one of the first jobs I had in, in newspapers. I was working in America, actually, and um, the news editor came over to me and said, I mean, we want you to go to Florida, and, and sort of walked off. And I was like, oh... Um, and I thought, how am I going to get to Florida? I didn't yeah. really have any money. Yeah. You know, I didn't have, a, you know, I didn't have a plane ticket. And then within the next sort of half an hour, they came, and gave me a plane ticket, they gave me a car voucher, yeah. they gave me some cash, and they were like, off you go. And I was yeah. like, this is great. Yeah. But I mean, that's how low my expectations were. I didn't expect anything. Yeah. Well, if you think of the journey that most people have when they get into the workplace, and I went through it as well. You're mm. at university. Yeah. You literally get money in your bank account for doing nothing right. through, through student loans. Right. So that's as given to you. Right. And then you go into the workplace, and you've got this idea of what work should be. Mm. But it's not as glamorous, it's not what no. you had in mind, and you do have to do the hard work and you have to have the graft, and sometimes you do get spoken out in a way that... And some of it might be dull. And some of it might be dull, some right. of it might be mundane. And I think that there has to be an understanding of people that go into the workplace, mm. especially in government, yes. with those types of jobs. There is a lot you've got to get through before you reach those upper levels yes. of government. And I, I work with a very small team here, so, so we all get along pretty well for most of the, most of the time anyway. Um, I'm sorry, Aaron's looking at me, <laughs> smiling <laughs> benignly. Um, but, you know, there are, there are places where, where I've heard of, of, of where you've got, say, a bigger team. You get somebody young who comes in as an intern mm. and they say, well, there's the, uh, there's the coffee machine we go make some coffee and they mm. go oh no don't do that yeah yeah you know and they're sort of 19 20 years old yeah still at university they don't make tea for people because that's beneath them yeah and you think that you know and you kind of going sorry there's a lot of privilege i mm. think and actually you know some of those from the better universities yeah. shall we say that those graduates that come out i think they've got an even 
elevated sense of actually that's yeah. beneath me I shouldn't be doing that I've got a degree from Oxford or Cambridge yes. well, we all have to start somewhere in the workplace right. it becomes an even playing field mm. again once you get past university so I and, I, and I presume issue. in places like the Department of Health and Social Care there will be a hierarchy but there will also be people who have been there such a long time and seen so many ministers come and go yeah. that they might think they own the place yes there's certainly a case of that and, yeah. and actually the more experienced heads uh, tend to be those that, that, that do put an arm around the younger folks that are coming in and show them the ways in which things work mm. because you know we all know workplaces have their nuances different characters different individuals like to be you know treated in different ways whatever it might be and I think getting to understand that is vital and that's why you need the experience of some of those older heads yeah. around to coach and nurture right. that young talent and there's loads of talent in the civil service mm. there genuinely is lots of well really there's good tens people, of thousands of people so they, they can't all be rubbish but I mean equally there seems to now be anyway at the top uh, certainly for those who leak stories to the Guardian <laughs> a real kind of hatred of the Tories mm. um, and that's beginning to come through with this kind of these, these kinds of rumours and these kinds of stories yeah it is and I think you know that's existed in the civil service for, for quite a while now and, and now it's become fashionable mm. to have sort of left-wing views or anti-Tory views and yes. if you consider a lot of people in the civil service live in London which yeah. we know is a fairly liberal uh, city yeah. li- liberal leaning well, it's city. a Labour city isn't it's it? a Labour city so it's natural that there'll be people with political views now that isn't an issue for me mm. the issue is when it starts to integrate into right. their work and if you leave your politics at the door I think you can be a fantastic mm. civil servant um, but it's a bit like you know you shouldn't be able to tell what someone's political views are no. in the civil service and I think that's changing right. to the point where you've got them speaking to the newspapers like the Guardian Right. Therefore, able to deliver, you know, and you also know. Like I mean, looking at the Home Office and all the problems that the Home Office, home office has got, um, not least involving the Home Office Union, mm. uh, which is actually, I think, suing the government over its policy on immigration. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And so you go, well, hang on a minute. Of course you're not going to carry out the policy if you're so so against it that you're actually suing the government to stop them from doing it. Yeah, and I think they have to get back to basics in mm. the civil service, which is that they are not there to formulate policy. Right. They are there to deliver policy. Yeah. And it's down to the democratically elected politicians to set that manifesto, to set that policy agenda, mm. and the civil servants are the ones that make it happen. And I just think there is now becoming a disconnect where civil servants seem to think that they can actually dictate policy or disagree with the yeah. policy when that isn't what they are there to do, that isn't what they are paid to do and I think that's where the big issue lies at the minute. Yeah it is absolutely utterly bizarre but I mean it's not going to get any better is it in terms of how it's going to go between now and the next election because they seem to have got the impression that if they could get Rob, which they kind of did, yeah. they could get anyone. Yeah and I think there is a, a real worry now. I imagine a lot of ministers are going to be thinking about their own conduct and what, mm. we're, what we want to avoid now is a group of ministers that are effectively scared mm. to drive through change to drive through things that are going to make this country better yeah. because they think that they're on the other end of a bullying allegation mm. or that they might lose yeah. their, their well, job you can imagine it. the conversation the minister says I want to do this and they go well we can't do it that way and if you carry on like this you'll end up like Dominic Raab yeah yeah and I think that those those sorts of threats hanging over any government minister's head is not good for the country at large it's certainly not good for no. the government's agenda to, to get the economy moving again to get our public services moving again mm. and I just think that's a real issue but they have to get on the civil servants and ministers have to get on and I think when government works well it's when there is a good relationship relationship between those in the private office of a minister's department and the the minister and their political uh, you know their political agenda yeah. too so there has to be that otherwise i think we're going down a very very uh, worrying worrying yeah. route slippery slope indeed yeah. leon thank you very much indeed leon emerald former government special advisor and former aide at steve barkley who's the latest minister caught up in these ridiculous bullying allegations which are not really allegations at all i mean it's almost like gossip all that is anything else but of course it's made it to the front page of the guardian and it's their lead story for heaven's sake. Nobody's mentioned as a source. It's all anonymous. This is Talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, how about this? I've spent 33 years serving this fine country. I was bullied out of the police with lies and deceit. I was told that it wasn't safe, uh, although it was more the fact that I was rubbish at the absurd amount of paperwork that is needed for the CPS to say yes or no to whether a crime will go to court or not. We need to employ people to do the paperwork and put people on the streets to police things. Well, I think that's probably right. Um, and Convo says maybe ministers should start wearing body cams to protect themselves. Um, and Chloe says basically that the reason that uh, they going after Steve Barclay is because he apparently uh, wants to make striking by medical staff illegal like servicemen and police officers. Well, that may well be true as well. So we'll keep on that story. We'll keep bringing you that. Uh, we'll take some calls on it as well. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk now, though, to Dr. Paul Stott, Head of Security and Extremism at a Policy Exchange. An extraordinary story uh, today um, uh, doing the rounds about two paedophiles who uh, have won anonymity for life, effectively, um, because they've threatened to kill themselves uh, if anybody finds out who they are or, in fact, if anybody can work out what they've done. Um, and this is one of those very, very um, hot subjects at the moment because, of course, if paedophiles are living anywhere near where children are, um, some parents believe they should know that that person is actually nearby. And let's talk to Dr Paul Stott to find out what's going on. Paul, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Um, this is something I've talked about quite a lot in the past because um, you'll probably know this, but in America they have a register uh, of basically of, of sex offenders and it's freely available to anybody on a website who wants to go and look at it. And if you live in a particular town, uh, you can simply um, put in your, your street or put in your neighbourhood and you can see exactly who has committed what crime and where they're living. Yes, Mike. The, the Americans much, uh, take a much more open approach to, to information. You can also, for example, go on in the Department of Corrections website and put in information about, for example, a terrorist prisoner and the details will come up, length of sentence, mm. which prison they're being held in, all that sort of thing. We've taken a much more restrictive view. There may well be reasons for that, but of course, in examples such as this case, the public, quite rightly, will not understand what is going on. Yes. And I mean, the thing is, these uh, people who are involved in this particular story, um, one involves a man who's admitted 22 offences involving possessing, distributing and making indecent child images. Um, his identity was revealed sort of inadvertently uh, following a legal challenge by a reporter. Uh, but then the judges reversed his ruling and granted lifetime anonymity, which, which doesn't seem right to me. No, I think there's been cases of lifetime anonymity. The, the best known case would be Mary Bell, who uh, I think uh, committed uh, murder when she was a child. Yes. And there may well be a case where, you know, people that are under 16, under 18, um, for example, at the time of offence, of maintaining that anonymity. But mm. the idea of lifetime anonymity for an adult, and in particular with a type of offence like this, where unfortunately re-offending is all too common, mm. it, it sounds bizarre on the face of it. On the information we're getting, it sounds surreal. Right. And is this a problem for... The whole of, of, of the sort of the, the justice system, if you like, in terms of um, the, the the reasons why anonymity is granted. I mean, is it done on a case by case basis, or or are you assumed to be anonymous until somebody asks for you not to be? Um, it's it's pretty much on a on a case by case um, basis, and and this is one of the reasons why we need strong local media, people badgering away, mm. carrying out uh, investigations and, and, and research, because where people can cover up 
crimes, they unfortunately will. Yeah. I mean, it really does seem to be quite a remarkable thing. The other story we wanted to talk to you about yeah. is the one about prison gangs, um, in particular jihadi prison gangs, which I know is a, a special uh, subject of yours, uh, forcing people in prison to convert to Islam, threatening them with violence. Um, this is a new investigation that's reported on this. Tell us a bit more. Well, this is a, a new report on faith uh, in the public sector, faith and how, how the government should uh, interact with uh, with faith groups and with religion by a guy called Colin Bloom. Mm. But the, the particular section you're talking about is, is quite a concerning section on the prison system. And I'm afraid here Colin Bloom in some ways hasn't told us anything new. Mm. One of the things we seem to specialise in this country is identifying problems, producing reports, <clears throat> and then a couple of years later identifying the same problems in a new report. And the sorts of issues Colin Bloom's talking about in terms of um, prison uh, radicalisation, extremist prisoners, uh, gangs of prisoners uh, allegedly forcing their faith on others. Uh, I mean, some of these have been issues in the prison system for many years and have been quite openly talked about. A uh, reporter, former prison governor Ian Aitchison did way back in 2016, right. was calling for better uh, vetting, for example, of, of prison chaplains. Um, what do we get in this report? Uh, pretty much the same mm. um, recommendation. So, um, you know, it, it's more of the same old story. And the problem here is the uh, the government's uh, not taking forward solutions, I'm afraid. I mean, you might think it would be a good idea to outlaw jihadi gangs in prison. I mean, call me old-fashioned, but surely it's not a very good thing to allow them to exist, is it? Well, one of the things that um, was supposedly set up was a sort of separation centres where some of the most uh, dangerous uh, terrorist prisoners would be isolated from the, the general prison system. Progress on that has been very slow. Uh, the Ministry of Justice, I think, have probably talked to better fines than they've delivered. But mistakes in this field are really serious. Mm. So back in 2020, we had what was uh, deemed a terrorist attack in prison by two guys, uh, Brustam Zamani and Baz Hopton, uh, both convert converts to Islam. Um, Baz Hopton, from a, a sort of traditional criminal background, um, white guy who'd converted to Islam uh, around people who'd been followers of Anjan Chowdhury, um, the Al Mahanjaroon group, people will remember. And yeah. these guys seem to have far too much influence in prison. They were able to mix, able to influence others, and if you like, to be the, the big gang, the big guys mm. in the prison. And the, the, the specialist centres, the, spe the separation centres, were supposed to bring that to an end. And uh, I'm afraid we've, we've seen very mixed progress. Mm. I think I've seen figures, um, you know, just several dozen uh, people in these uh, isolation centres. And really, it should, be, it should be far more. Yes, because, I mean, we've heard as well of people going into prison um, not being sort of terrorist trained, but then coming out of prison, having been sort of radicalised by some of these gangs. Failure to identify as a Muslim, says the report, meant that at best the new prisoner would be denied protection from the dominant Muslim gang on that wing, or at worst the new prisoner would be subjected to violence and, and intimidation from the same gang. Yes, there's a particular line in the report that's, that's quite worrying. If people look at the, uh, the PDF online, I think it's page 95, talks uh, about this line of converse or get hurt. And this is used to in intimidate uh, mm. prisoners by uh, Islamist prisoners. And I, I suspect in, in practice, they're not looking for people to be part of the day-to-day -day faith community. They're looking for them to, to submit to the gang, to submit to their particular interpretation of the faith. And of course, in a prison environment, 
Some guys are bigger than others, yeah. some guys are tougher than others, and people will acquiesce. Mm. And uh, the authorities have to decide who runs the prisons. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Dr. Paul Stott, thank you very much indeed. Head of Security and Extremism at Policy Exchange there, Dr. Stott, talking about the jihadi problem uh, in the British prisons, which seems ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, there shouldn't be one. For heaven's sake. 0344 499 1000. David in Nottingham says, uh, This country is getting pathetic. You can't even give a rollicking without fear of being branded a bully. It gets worse by the day. We are becoming a nation of frightened individuals who dare not say or do anything for fear of being branded something derogatory. So, in effect, it's us that are being bullied on a huge scale. Well, you might say that. It does seem that the civil service as a group is far more capable of bullying a minister than the other way around, isn't it? Coming up next, we'll talk to former minister Kit Malthouse. He's written today in The Sun uh, about the teacher strike and how well off the schools in this country have become. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Much going on today. We need to hear from some of you as well, though. This is the place to hear your voice heard because uh, we care what you think and we can pass it on uh, to the powers that be whenever we talk to them. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number, of course. Uh, Mike, with the civil service now running, the, oh, I think we've done that one. Uh, Lee Anderson MP had the guts to tell Eustace Rowley the truth, says Mick in Wallington. Uh, that was the story that happened yesterday uh, when Lee Anderson uh, told uh, the new head of the Metropolitan Police to get out of his ivory tower and go and do some real policing. Uh, the government don't seem to have the same will to deal with civil service unions, unlike Mrs May, who destroyed the police federation, says Mick. Perhaps that was easy because the federation could not fight back. Well, there's a few problems in the public sector. We're going to talk now uh, to Kit Morthouse MP, former Education Secretary, ex-Crime and Policing Minister, of course, as well. He's written a great piece in The Sun today uh, where he says it's time for the silent majority of sensible teachers to ignore the loud union chiefs. And today, I'm afraid, if you've got children, you will know, uh, is yet another strike day for many of our schools, right smack bang in the middle of exam season. Um, and for a lot of parents, it's a very, very annoying situation because many of them have had to take the day off. Their kids aren't going to school when they should be. Um, a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Mike. Pleasure to see you. Very good piece today, I thought. I mean, very interesting as well, some of the figures that you reveal. Uh, so, so do talk us through them. The fact that, that schools have actually been given a fair amount of money, a bit of a, a, bit of a golden hello, if you like. Um, and, and I know that the teachers unions would probably say, yeah, but that didn't go towards staffing costs or anything like that. But just tell us how much money they've, they've been given. Yeah, so that's absolutely dead right. Uh, Mike. So last year when I was Secretary of State for Education, there were lots of cries for help from the school sector about rising energy costs, inflation, you know, in fact, teachers had had a pay award, uh, which was about 5%, which had been sort of only partially funded. And so they were under pressure. So I had a look at the numbers and agreed with them, actually, mm. to the tune of about 2 billion quid. And so I then started a campaign to persuade the Treasury, took that to the back benches, and the Chancellor happily, in the autumn statement, agreed and put just over £2 billion in this year and next. Now, that means that on a per-pupil basis, in real terms, even according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies, no uh, body to shy away from criticising the government, even according to them, schools funding will reach the highest level it's ever been mm. in history. Um, and so there's plenty of money being pumped into the system. And, you know, two billion quid, two thousand million pounds is a lot of money. Mm. As I pointed out in the article, you know, that's enough money to buy 475 Challenger tanks for the army. I think they've only got 150 at the moment. <laughs> so, so there's, there's a well, the, other, the other one I liked is the 76,000 Vauxhall Astros for the police. 
That's I mean, exactly is, is, that right. be, is that before or after they get painted with the rainbow colours? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They'll, they'll have there's a bit extra to put some of that on, and the lights, what they call blues and twos. But look, the, the the important point here is that the government has really, as far as I can see, stepped up to the mark on funding schools. Mm. And the union are trying to make this about more than pay. They're about trying to make it about schools funding. Now, you will remember back in 2017 when schools funding was under significant pressure and there were parents campaigning outside schools Mm. to raise money for pencils. That is no longer the case. And that money starts to hit the bank accounts of schools next week. Yeah. Right. It will start to to flow. So the the case is not there really about this. And, And given that, as you said in your preamble, you know, the strike is getting in the way of lots of people getting to work, police mm. officers who got 5%, you know, others who've accepted, you know, nurses, doctors, no. firefighters can't get to school. Um, it's a big problem. And and the union leadership seemed to me to be at odds with their membership. So when they balloted for this strike, I think over just over 50% of the, uh, of the possible number of teachers voted and 90% of them voted for, which actually means... Fewer than half of yeah. teachers voted for the strike, right? So there's got to be some sanity here, given the the straightened times the country is facing. And I just hope that the unions will see sense and move forward and realise that, you know, given the damage that was done to kids' mm. education during the pandemic, we can't afford any more. Yes. And as much as people did have, I think, some sympathy at the beginning, for, certainly for the nurses' strike, I think people have less sympathy for teachers because teaching, while it's obviously not an easy job, it's not as hard a job as working in the NHS. They get lots of long holidays. Uh, they have, you know, relatively short working days. They'd all say that that's not true, of course. But you're right, because in my case, for example, I've got two kids uh, who are currently doing their exams. One school is, has remained open for one of them, but the other one hasn't. Um, so, you know, if you were in a position of, you know, worrying about whether you could go to work or not, you, you basically couldn't um, if you didn't find anybody to look after them. So it's it's a, it's a massive problem. And also they keep talking, as all unions now do, that it's not just about money, it's about retaining staff. I don't really buy that argument with teachers, because surely if you want to be a teacher, you want to be a teacher, don't you? Well, look, I mean, there are shortages of teachers in some areas, not least things like maths. But even there, right, I mean, when the election 2019, there was a manifesto pledge which will be fulfilled next year that the starting salary for teachers would reach 30,000. Mm. That's going to happen next year, right? Now, when you think the starting salary for a copper is, what, 22, 23, mm. same for a nurse, you know, junior, you know, it's actually very, very competitive. And while teaching is an incredibly important job, we shouldn't pretend that it's an easy job. It mm. is quite tough, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, some, I wouldn't want to do it. Some part of this country. And the, my problem with the strike as well is that it sends a signal to the brightest and best young people who we need to be teachers that actually this is a profession that's not for them, that morale is low, all those kind of things. Mm. When you actually go and visit schools and you talk to teachers, many of them are incredibly inspiring and very dedicated to the kids in their care. And so... This kind of belligerent approach by the, the union leadership is really not helping the cause. I don't think it helps the discipline in the school either, because, you know, if one day you uh, don't go to school because your teachers have decided not to bother turning up, um, you know, if you're a sort of, you know, slightly, I don't know, tricky uh, teenage boy, you might go, well, why should I do what you tell me? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and it's worth remembering that one of the issues coming out of the pandemic was that we saw a decline in both attendance and behaviour. I I said in the article, you know, on average, kids lost about 61 days of schooling first year of the pandemic alone. 
right? This is this is. I mean, I think it added up to something like two hundred and seventy mm. million individual days of schooling that were lost. Yeah. Now you will know from your own kids that when you they get out of the habit of behaving and attending, mm. it can be quite some work to get them back. And we did see a big reduction in in good behaviour in schools, yeah. so about a percent. And so we, you know, getting them back into the habit is critical. Now, given these two days, strangely, conveniently bookending an already long weekend. Yes. Um, by the, these two days, when you take regional and local strikes, this is this will make the eighth and ninth day of strikes. It's really going to do very significant damage, not just to those kids who are in exam season, as mm. you say, um, you know, but to other kids whose uh, education has been so significantly disrupted over the last two or three years. Exactly right. And the other thing that sometimes happens is that the schools don't get told by individual teachers whether they're going to strike or not, which makes it an impossible decision for the headmaster or the headmistress, uh, if we're allowed to use those two words these days, um, because they don't know whether they're going to have anybody turn up. And then if they shut the school, the teachers actually still get paid. So it's not like a strike day uh, by not declaring whether they've gone on strike or not, which is pretty unhelpful. It's, it's a very tricky one as well. And don't forget, quite a lot of teachers uh, will have their kids at other schools mm. that may be affected. So they are also prevented from working because they have to stay at home to look after their kids. Right. So the domino effect of, ki of schools being closed is enormous. Yeah. And at a time when, for example, the country is trying to, to improve our economy and grow, you know, we've got two, two three bank holidays this, this month. Yeah. These days are going to have a an economic impact as well. And I'm mm. pretty certain that they'll show up in the GDP growth figures. It's that significant when millions and millions of kids can't go to, to school. Yeah. So what I hope is, Mike, is that given the enormous amount of money that the government's putting in now, it's promised for the next two years that we have an independent pay review body that decides teachers pay, that, as I said in my article, the silent majority of really dedicated, committed teachers decide that they need to step forwards uh, and ignore what the union is telling them to do. Yes, I think that would be good. Can I just ask you about uh, Suella Braverman's message to the police as well, with your uh, former policing minister's hat on? Uh, six things that she doesn't want them to do anymore, including don't take the knee, don't hand out drinks to eco-vandals causing hell for commuters, don't stand by while statues get pulled down. Um, all, you would think, pretty sensible ideas that you wouldn't have to tell the police, but we've sort of reached that point where now you do. Well, do you know what, uh, Mike? I mean, I've worked with the police for a lot of my political career, both when I was at City Hall and then as as policing minister for a number of, of years. Mm. And I've learned uh, over those years that what immediately appears um, on the TV or the media is often a much more complicated situation. Yeah. And actually, behind those incidents, there are officers who have devoted sometimes many years of their lives to nicking villains. Yeah. Yeah, the one thing we notice about them is when they do something that uh, perhaps uh, gets a bit of political disapproval. So I, I, I'm very, very hesitant to criticise police officers. I've seen, um, you know, some remarkable things done by those men and women. And given the state of policing and the, the pressure they're under at the moment, I know that the Home Secretary and the whole team at the Home Office and indeed the whole government wants to stand by the police and support them in the important work that they do, even in those difficult situations where they sometimes possibly don't make quite the right decision. Mm. I think certainly everybody in the country would like to see them making more arrests and, and, and cleaning up more burglaries and all that kind of thing that, that seems to have fallen by the wayside lately. 
Well, you see, that's the interesting thing, right? One of the things that's very hard to get across is that, that crime is actually very significantly down. Mm. Burglary is down significantly over the last few years, as is violence, as is robbery, as is car crime, right? Over the last 10 years, we've seen, you know, burglary and, and violent crime and what you call kind of real world crime has has halved. Right. So we've seen an enormous impact. And that is largely down to the work of all those dedicated police officers who occasionally uh, come up for, for criticism. But you know what? It's very hard uh, to convince people that crime is down. They sort yeah. of, for some reason, it's the one statistic they don't believe. But, you know, now we've hit the 20,000 police officer target, which is great. They'll be seeing more and more uniforms on their street. Hopefully they'll see, feel safer and safer in their neighbourhoods. And slowly but surely that tide of perception will turn. Mm, yeah, because I think definitely the perception is that it's a more dangerous world out there than it was certainly even just two years ago. Uh, but Kit, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Kit Malthouse, former Education Secretary and ex-Crime and Policing Minister there, defending the police, uh, saying they do a much better job than you think. Do they? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are getting through the show because this is the final hour of it. And Ian Collins will be here, of course, uh, at one o'clock to tell us what's coming up with him. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to talk about the greatest story of the day, uh, which is actually the baked beans and fish fingers are, in fact, good for you. We'll be talking about that coming up in about half an hour's time. Also, Helena Nicklin's going to be here uh, for the Thursday Club. And today, because we're just over a week away from the coronation of King Charles, uh, we're going to be talking about coronation beverages and what we could be drinking uh, on the big weekend, which is, of course, next weekend. Bank holiday uh, coming up on Monday. Another bank holiday coming up on the Monday after that. No wonder the economy's in the absolute toilet. What can you say? Uh, Adam Coleman's here as well from New York. Uh, he's a columnist for the New York Post. Adam, welcome uh, to London. I know that we were supposed to hook up last time you were here, but now we have, which yep. is great. We're going to talk about a great many things. But how about this before uh, we do anything? Uh, Chris has texted me this, an advert for a train driver. The train driver's going on strike again, particularly on the FA Cup final day, so nobody will be able to get to London for the Cup final. Um, a current ad for a train driver's job, GBR, offering £61,739 for a 34 and a half hour working week spread over four days so they got a four-day week already um, and now they're going on strike for more money i mean it's amazing absolutely incredible um let's talk to adam coleman adam welcome to the independent republic thank um, you thank you very much we've spoken to you many times uh, on the other side of the atlantic but you're here in london yes um tell us what you're here for first of all um i'm just working on a, a small film project okay. uh hopefully something that can release onto youtube mm -hmm. something of that nature but right. Mainly, I definitely want to be in here in studio with you. Yes, it's you know. very good to have you here. Yeah. Uh, you you reached London at a sort of interesting time as well because, uh, you know, we're in the midst of all these strikes. We've got a sort of rampant revolution of public sector workers going on. Uh, we've got teachers on strike today. Uh, there's <laughs> going to be train drivers on strike again soon. So don't try and go anywhere. We're going to have um, probably another nurses strike at some point. The NHS is on its knees. Um, however, mm -hmm. life goes on. You just kind of have to get through it. Um, but one of the things we want to talk to you about from your time in, in the US of A, you write a column in the New York Post, amongst other things, um, is the fact that sort of the wokery that has kind of infected so much of American life is now starting to infect life in this country. And actually, I wonder sometimes whether, like today, we've got a story from the Home Secretary that the police are going to be told to actually, you know, stop all this wokery nonsense and get on with it. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a bit of a backlash. Is there a backlash in America against it at all? Yeah, a little bit. Um I, I don't really actually see our police departments becoming more woke. Mm. We actually see more of the, the governing body kind of uh, handicapping them, yeah. whether it's changing laws 
whether it's um, letting people out early. Yeah. So the police are actually doing their job. Right. But, you know, uh, recidivism is really high. Um, I think in your post, they were talking about how uh, all the all the theft that was happening, uh, shoplifting theft that was yes. happening, was committed by basically like a hundred some odd people. Oh, really? Yeah, they were just being let out over and over and okay. over. Because a lot of cities, because a friend of mine was off to San Francisco today, and mm. he was saying that he was going to be very careful where he went in San Francisco because they've decriminalized so much thing oh, yeah. stuff, right? So a lot of people just shoplift as a general course, as long as it's less than $900 or something, they don't get charged? Yeah, and overall theft in San Francisco has mm. gone up as well. Right. Um, it's a common thing where if you're flying in, that they follow you from the airport yeah. in your rental car. Really? And they say, don't leave your luggage in your car. Oh, wow. Yeah, so if you get out, take your luggage with you right. because someone's probably behind you ready to break the window and, and snatch your stuff. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. I remember that went on in Florida for a while. And yeah. I mean, because here we've got a problem with shoplifting, but people here say it's because they can't afford to eat. So they basically run into a supermarket, fill a ba basket full of stuff and run out with it. Yeah. And nobody stops them. You know, and I suppose this is one of the problems you have if you don't have enough police on the street or you don't have enough people um, to do the job of law enforcement. Yeah, but the reasons for shoplifting here, I think, are different mm. than what's happening in the States, especially a place like San Francisco right. has a lot of drug usage. Right. And there's a black market as well as for, for items being sold. So they're not, you know, stealing food. They're stealing all types of items. Right. And they're and, just walking and out with money. it. Yeah. Literally, you can go down the street, and mm. it's on the sidewalk. Right. These are all the goods from CVS and Walgreens. Right. So uh, it's it's a very different situation. It's amazing, isn't it? And also, uh, I'm looking at a piece here about the 10 homicide hotspots in the U.S. of A., and this has been interesting for people who might be traveling over there. Memphis, number one, New Orleans, Richmond, Washington, D.C., which has always been a pretty violent city. Detroit, Durham, Dallas, Milwaukee, Las Vegas. I mean, loads of people from Britain go to Las Vegas, mm -hmm. and that's now one of the hotspots for murder. I didn't know Las Vegas right. made that list, yeah. There were a couple of cities that I was uh, actually shocked it wasn't on there, but... Um, well, I'm surprised New York wasn't on there because I'm told New York, I haven't been back to New York really since COVID mm -hmm. um, because I used to live there and I was there in the 80s, you know, probably before you were born. Um, and it was, I know, an incredible place to live. It was so vibrant and, and, and sort of full of energy. And I'm told it's completely changed now. Yeah, the it's less of the violent crime as far as because you're talking about homicides. Yeah, the ultimate. Um, I don't think homicides have increased tremendously. I think mm. overall crime has increased. Right. And that makes people feel unsafe, naturally yeah. speaking. But um, as far as homicides go throughout these different democratic cities, uh, you know, a lot of times they try to say, well, it's happening nationwide mm. so, to kind of take away from, well, you're still culpable for mm. what's happening within your right. city. Um, and the reality is that you have people like George Soros who openly states, I'm funding DAs throughout the country mm. to take a certain approach to prosecutions, right. and they've used, this is where the wokery kind of comes in. Right. It's not at the police force, it's at the DA office, right. who says, well, you know, it's just theft. Or, you know, they're doing it for a reason. Right. Or, you know, let's... Or let's, we can excuse them because can they're excuse, poor or yeah. something, right? Right. They've become very soft on it. Mm. The reality is, like, uh, I was talking to someone from Minneapolis. Yeah. There was a, a car theft issue that was going on. Mm. What they found out was that the vast majority of car thefts were committed by 12 kids. Right. That was it. Yeah. And it's so much crime happens. Well, we just, funnily people. enough, we just busted, well, I say we, uh, here in London, the police just busted a watch gang uh, mm -hmm. who were basically snatching, you know, quite nice watches from people in places like Knightsbridge and, you know, Park Lane, Mayfair, places where people wear quite expensive watches. And it was four guys. 
Yeah. And they were basically doing all of it, you know. <laughs> um, and it's amazing how often police people will tell me that, you know, if there's burglary going on in your street, there's a pretty good chance that the person doing the burglary lives in the street. Mm. And is actually just robbing houses because he knows where they are, you know, he knows where everybody lives and he watches people and all that kind of thing, you know. Right. And, and of course, the, the, the DAs are, in America, for, for us, that's like the sort of what we would call the DPP, the Department of Public Prosecutions. Mm. So they decide, like, for example, the Manhattan DA, who's currently going after <laughs> Donald Trump, without yeah. much success, it would seem. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody believes that case is going to go through. I don't. I, even Democrats do. They, right. they don't. It's they, like a complete waste of time. I mean, even when the indictment was read out, we, we were going, sorry, what, <laughs> what, what have you got him for? What, for not filing something? Like, it's like a white... It's a, it's a it's a paper crime, effectively, isn't it? Yeah, basically, and there's questions of the statute of limitations. Yeah, you know, so there's no there's still no federal case, as far as we know. No. So at the moment, it's it doesn't fit the criteria for the statute of limitations to be lifted. Right. So at the moment, there's a good chance that in December, when supposedly the, it goes back before a judge, he's just going to throw it out. Yeah. I mean, what a waste of money, <laughs> apart from anything else. Waste of money, but you know what? Trump can still campaign off of that. Well, He's Trump made a lot of money out he of it. Made that, a lot of money he? already. And let's talk about the Trump sort of um, bandwagon because we saw Joe Biden just the other day mm-hmm. and declare that he's going to run again, which even here I think people were aghast at. I see that something like 70% of Americans don't think he should. Mm-hmm. So why is he doing it? I think Joe Biden is a company man. And I think that's why he ran in the first place. Mm. I really don't believe that Joe Biden wanted to wake up from his crypt and, and go and travel around the country right. to run for president. Well, he didn't do it last time, did he? I mean, he just stayed at home. Right. Well, he, he traveled a little bit. Yeah. He just used COVID as an excuse. Right. But um, I really don't believe that he wanted this. I think mm. the company, the establishment, the Democratic establishment, wants him to run again because I don't think they really have a viable candidate right. to, to go against an incumbent president. So... Mm. Um, you know, people talk about Gavin Newsom. I think if Gavin He's Newsom the was going to run, California, right? yeah. yeah, I think if he was going to run, he'd probably announce soon. Mm. But there's also a question: Would he go against Joe Biden? Right. So, and would he win against Joe Biden? I suppose. I, me personally, I think he would. Right. Um, but I think there's there's a lot more control on the on the left and mm. the Democrat Party right. as far as and who's how much go of the wokery has gripped Biden because there's so much kind of that we hear about the the, yeah. the the craziness in America, particularly in schools. I mean, in Florida, for example, there's a big row going on between Disney and Governor Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. because Disney have kind of taken a political stance on some law that he wants to make a, th- a thing. And I don't understand why they would do that. I mean, they're claiming that they're the sort of biggest employer in Florida because of Disney World and all that. However, um, why would they get mixed up in all of that? Uh, because... <laughs> the wokery is crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of activism right. that everybody, in, including corporate America, thinks that they need to get involved. Mm. They think that they need to say right. something. Whereas the and old, this is about teaching yeah. sexual sex education to, to primary school children, right? Effectively. That and also stuff that they're doing as far as a company, mm. as far as promoting transgenderism, promoting right. uh, you know, the gender stuff. Right. Um, there's a lot of pushback to that right. as well. Because Disney say the reason that they oppose what Ron DeSantis wants to do is because their employees have said mm-hmm. that they want Disney to be a sort of power for transgender ideology, which seems bonkers to me. <laughs> We've seen what's happened to Bud Light, you know, who lost, what, $6 billion dollars? offer their share price um, because of the fact that they employed Dylan Mulvaney um, to do a transgender ad and Nike in the same boat as well. And you just think, what the hell is going on? I think everybody's following the trend. Mm. I think that's what it mostly is. But surely after Bud Light losing money 
and the backlash against Nike, they'll realize actually that's maybe not the way to go, won't they? Well, that's part of it. But the, the other part of it is ESG the, right. and the impact of ESG in corporate America. ESG you know, being what? Um, was it environmental? I forgot the initials. But basically, they have certain guidelines. Right. And, and what it comes down to is the more woke you are, the better it looks for investors, mm. the better it looks in corporate America. Um, and you, by meeting this score, right. you, you look more impressive. And who gives out the score? I'm told it's environmental and social governance. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Environmental and social governance. So who makes that rule? Uh, well, I don't know the origins of it, right. but it's it's basically like a, a philosophy. Right. It's a it's a corporate philosophy to abide by. Right. So it's like one of these things that everybody has adopted, but nobody really understands why or how or where it came from. Right. I, I think people within corporate America might. Yeah. Um, I just I'm not an expert on ESG, but I think that that plays. Yes, into but it. I mean it plays into that yeah. whole wokery game, doesn't it? Where yeah. you're basically supposed to apply a set of values yes. to a business. Even right. though it's your business, and even though it's owned by shareholders, you get more points and more brownie points, I guess, if you are doing it the way they want you to do it. I mean, that's quite sinister, isn't it? A little bit. I mean, if you if you frame it in one way, it's like giving, uh, you know, we have Citizens United. Yeah. The companies are people, too. Uh, so if you treat companies like a, a personality, right. right, what is your value system as a right. company? So I think there's a lot of that. This is the trouble, and this is what we're dealing with here, because, for example, we were talking earlier about the civil service, you know, like the people mm-hmm. that work for the government, uh, who are public sector workers, but who are advisors, you know, they work for government ministers, that kind of thing. And there's a lot of bullying accusations going around. There's lots of ministers. One minister got had to resign last week because he was accused of bullying. And it's almost as though the people who believe on the left, what they believe. If you mm-hmm. don't agree with them, you're a bully. If you don't agree with them, you're a bad guy. If you right. don't agree with them, you're evil. And you have to be kind of expunged from the system because there's no tolerance anymore for different views, right? I think that's being felt uh, throughout the West. Mm. Um, there is a, a certain activism mindset yeah. where either you're with us or against us. Right. Um, and things have become very, very partisan right. in that way. And even within in those left-right economy there are lines in between there as well right so it's i don't know when we're going to go back Mm. but i can't wait (laughs) yeah i know well i think as long as there's enough of us that continue to kind of push back a little bit on it and go wait a minute you know that doesn't sound right to me you know i don't mind what views people have i'm very happy to entertain anybody's views right but what i don't think we should be doing is, is shutting people up because you don't sound right right you know that sounds incredibly un-american apart from anything else absolutely and we don't advance if we don't ask questions Mm, exactly right so you're here during the time of the coronation of king charles are you going to still be here for that or are you going to take a no i'm here to take a plane out of here before that happens (laughs) (laughs) yeah how are people seeing that over there because um you know the queen obviously was universally loved by everybody but but here we're starting to hear sounds that perhaps the royal family is not as important now that it that it once was the coronation won't be as big of a deal, um, probably, as the Queen's funeral. Um, what do the Americans say? You know, what's interesting, uh, is just in general with the royal family, I think we only talk about it when something significant is about to happen. Right. But I rarely have conversations with anybody about the royal family. Right. Is it an age thing, do you think? Possibly. possibly. It you might know, like possibly Your parents be. might have been more kind of, you know, they might have seen more relevance to the royal family uh, in the same way that maybe my parents would have done as well you know what i will say this there was a love affair with princess diana right she was very very liked and people would bring her up right um but i think since then what about harry and Meghan? um more of a nuisance right 
if it does come up, right. they, they kind of find them annoying. Right. At well, least they kind of, of are annoying. <laughs> we find them annoying too. Yeah. Um, but as far as just in general, we, we're not hyper-focused on the royal family unless right. something very, very important happens. Yes. Well, I mean, the coronation is a pretty big deal. It's the yeah. first one in my lifetime, certainly, because I missed the last one. And it probably will be the only one in my lifetime because he'll probably be good for 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. So it is quite a big deal. But I just get the sense that people aren't as excited about this as I'm, I'm gathering the as, same as, as maybe they, they would have been, I don't know, 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, I think that's good. Adam, listen, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Adam Coleman, New York Post uh, columnist. Also, you'll find him on Twitter as well. Uh, and you'll find him all over the place. And we'll uh, we'll send you out some uh, some info as to how to follow him and find what he is saying, because uh, it's all very interesting stuff. We've got more to do. Uh, we'll take more of your calls. Of course, uh, this is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 